This week in the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about black women during Reconstruction. University of Maryland Eastern Shore History professor Arlisha Norwood describes the role that black women played during the Reconstruction era and how they served as catalysts for a lot of the practices we see today, like alimony and child support. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So last class, right, we picked up or we left off with Reconstruction. Everybody remember that. We started talking about, um, I. it's after 1865, so we start with the end of the Civil War. What did I tell y'all about the Civil War? Does anybody remember? Well, how did I describe what was going on? Was it... Yeah, bloodiest war. What else? Because I picked up and I was talking about a specific group. So, who is most impacted by the Civil War? We went into this political, the political issues that this group is running into. What do we talk about? Yeah, you got to say. <laughs> so, we talked about the four. You hesitated. We talked about the four million enslaved African Americans who are now free. Right, the federal government is now dealing with this. It, they, team, they deem it an issue, but African-Americans don't think freedom is an issue. They're just trying to make freedom happen. They're running into all of these things, though. We have, they're trying to maneuver in a free labor society. Y'all remember I said people are now going to their possible former, or could be their former master, but a white southerner and saying, hey, listen, white southerner, I'm no longer enslaved. You have to pay me what I'm due. How, this is what I'm worth, this is what time I want to get off, all of these things. And it's just issues, you all, that keep, they keep conflicting. White Southerners are refusing to do that. White Southerners, many of them are upset because they have lost the Civil War. White former Confederates are there, Confederates who lost the war. I also mentioned a group of people that are just incite everybody. Black soldiers are walking in Southern cities and towns with their uniforms on. And this is upsetting you all southerners are asking like look like we are we're defeated this is we're, we were the defeated people and we're having having to deal with all of these things all the time now i told y'all that it's extremely violent during the civil war sydney was right but it's also extremely violent after the war because of this conflict this big deal race relations i want to also today i'm going to dig a little bit deeper into this i'm going to pull Something that I spent lots of student loan debt in, can't pay the Navian back out. I spent a lot of years, my specific research was on black women in the post-Civil War South. And I picked this, and I told y'all this last class, I picked, I grew up in the South. I knew about Civil War monuments. I knew something about the Civil War. But I wanted to know more about black women. And so I wanted to understand them specifically after the war, because I just told y'all we are messed up in the United States. And I thought to myself, well, if the United States is messed up, black women got to be doubly messed up because of gender and race. So I wanted to make sure that point that I created in my head was true. I, um, I started with understanding black women 
and all of them, but specifically single black women. And that is because, I don't know, I, well, I may have mentioned this last class, we talked a lot about the, the things that African-Americans did. They built institutions, y'all remember? Those in institutions included churches, schools. I talked about name changes, these indicators of freedom. Another indicator that I did not mention last class, specifically to mention here, was marriage. African-Americans run to get married. Why is that, y'all? Why is marriage so important? Was marriage allowed during enslavement? Marriage was not legal during enslavement. So enslaved African-Americans could not legally marry. What does that mean? They could get married. If you choose to engage and get married today, there, there are a couple of, uh, it's a, a complex process that I didn't know anything about until I got married, but it includes an informal ceremony that most people have at a church or you can really have the informal ceremony wherever you want, but it also is the formal process where you sign the real certificate. It is the legit court thing that y'all are together, right? And African-Americans run to do not the informal process because they did that. Have you ever heard of jumping the broom, right? All of those indicators of marriage, the informal process, they run to do the formal, the legal process of getting married, being recognized as husband and wife under the law. Why is that important? Why is it so important to be recognized as partners under the law? What kind of benefits do I get if I'm legally recognized as a, as a partner? This is one y'all know for sure. Well, I know it, but y'all. <laughs> What'd you say? Assets, assets, ass insurance, benefit, everything legally recognized under the law means that if my partner should pass, I will get something. But also, it's all sorts of other protections that I'm not going to go in. 19th century is real different, too, because as a woman, when you get married, if I had any property, if I just so happened to buy a little bit of land, that also goes to my husband. So another asset, land, that means, and we'll get into this later, that the children that I bear are legally recognized as my partner's children. So it ain't no discussion about that. It's over, okay? So those legal recognitions matter in freedom, and that is what they push to do. And so if y'all should decide to go into reconstruction way deeper than this uh, view that we have today. What y'all will notice in most of the reconstruction books, they're always talking about African-Americans pushed to being married. Like, and it is true that the, the Union Army remarks that they, the, 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 the people follow us and all they want to do is be legally recognized as husband and wife. They hold these mass weddings, it's totally true. But I wanted to know, what about those people that didn't get married? Like, what about those people who chose not to get married? And more importantly, chose freedom to exit an informal marriage. Because that's a big deal. When I'm free, that means that I can decide to get married or I can decide to get unmarried. So I wanted to know more about that. Right? I started focusing specifically on single black women or black women. Regular black women. Now, in this huge setting that I just gave y'all. Everybody's yelling at each other. We trying to work out how to be a United States. I told y'all president is assassinated. It's just bad. What northerners know is this, is that here's the deal. Whatever's going to happen with race relations in the United States, 
somebody is going to have to be a mediator. Black Southerners and white Southerners, they're going to need somebody to stand in between of them and help them deal with their issues, whatever they should be. We have thrown, in fact, there's a huge race riot in 1866 in Memphis. 46 black people are killed. All of this race riot just starts because black soldiers are in the streets. I told you these, these incidents of race riots are happening. And the federal government says, or the union, federal government says, listen, these people need some help, y'all. We have thrown them down there and back to the defeated southern states and they need some help. And so they create a federal agency, okay? Federal agency means it's ran from the Washington, D.C., not the Annapolis, Maryland, the Washington, D.C., the head of that federal agency is selected as Oliver Otis Howard. Y'all may know him, the namesake for Howard University, a former union general. He's probably the best leader the Freedmen's Bureau is going to get back then. Freedmen's Bureau is really created to help and really to help formerly enslaved African-Americans and this is the interesting part of it, poor white Southerners integrate back into society because what was happening before was not going to work out. And so this bureau is created. It is ran from D.C. again, but on the ground, which is what, how it is implemented, on the ground there are local, well, there's an office, a state office, and then there are local offices. So in some places the office would have been um, in Baltimore, in Virginia, some of the offices were in Richmond, some were in the rural, rural portions of town, rural portions of the state. But it is a really, it is supposed to work, you all. They're supposed to help you. And so through that agency, through the Freedmen's Bureau Agency, black women get to it. They know what is going on. I told y'all they're struggling with labor. And so one historian Mary Farmer Kaiser says they besiege the office. They in the office every day with the Bureau complaining about several things, talking about several things. And I, let me follow the slide. So this is an important image. A long time ago, the newspaper used to, um, there's an important newspaper, Harper's Weekly. We don't read newspapers today. Y'all don't care, but their newspapers used to be a vital form, a vital way to get information, not Twitter and not the Instagram. But Harper's Weekly was one of these newspapers that came out weekly, and they would include images. And some of these images y'all may have seen, but this is one of the biggest ones to describe Reconstruction. On one side, there are white Southerners. On the other side, there are African-American males. And this is the Freedmen's Bureau agent saying, hold up, everybody. Let's just talk it out. Let's mediate this situation together, okay? Now, one big thing I want to mention is that Freedmen's Bureau agents back then were normally white northern men. So you take a white northern man and place him in, let's, let's give him a little bit of a chance. I'm going to place him in Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, I'm, I'm picking Richmond because it's supposed to be a city in the south. Let's place him in Richmond, Virginia. White northern man may or may not have seen slavery up front. Let's assume that he kind of has. He read maybe Uncle Tom's Cabin. He, he's not just completely aloof about slavery. But what this white northerner has not seen is how white southerners react to 
formerly enslaved people. And so there's this big, big adjustment. Even, I also want y'all to think, and we may be going a little too deep here, but I'm gonna try to get y'all to think about it. We also, we need to think about the perception of black women and black men in the white Northern mind or just the normal mind. And so these people are aware that form, they were, of course, formerly enslaved, but can they, can they be free by themselves? Like, are they able to live by themselves? Do they have religion? That's a big thing the Freedmen's Bureau agent is always talking about. Like, do they go to church? I'm unaware if that's the real church they go to. Are they interested in reading? Do they understand the institution of marriage, of legal marriage? Do they think that you can be with everybody in your neighborhood and still be married? And so it's a lot of the Freedmen's Bureau is supposed to mediate economic and social issues, but Freedmen's Bureau agents come in with their own opinions of black, black people in the South. So formed way before they ever met any of them. So black women start to go to these Freedmen's Bureau agents' office and say, you're supposed to be here to mediate. Let me just tell you what I'm dealing with. Some of the things they talk about, they complain. I said this last class, they start complaining about, I went to my employer and asked him for my $5 and he refused to pay me. What are y'all gonna do about that? Y'all are the federal, and again, this is a federal agency. Y'all have the power of the federal government to do this, step in and, and um, do it. Another thing that happens, the Freedmen's Bureau agents here, and this is probably the biggest complaint they hear, they hear about black women who their children have been taken. Under enslavement, y'all remember, the child would, did not belong to the mother. The child was an enslaved child, right? And so after, in freedom, White Southerners still believe that. This woman is not the mother of this child. And I, I kind of mentioned this last class that labor is so important with children after the Civil War. People are, it, white, white Southerners have to get back on their feet somehow because this is a free labor society, right? They need as much labor as possible in, in some of these places. And so they take these women's children and in, in layman's terms, they enslave them. They say, this child no longer belongs to you. I'm not paying you nor them, let it go. And so black women come into the office and talk about this. My child was taken, my child was taken. Can you help me get back my child? And in some cases the Bureau is successful in doing that. Black women talk about, um, this is a case actually in Maryland of a child being taken. What is this one? Another child, she um, holds her son Luke, Casper Norman against her consent. He's, these people are taking their children. I told y'all they besieged the office and said, hey, listen, he refused to pay me. Another big one is the violence. I said this, they run into places and they're just hit across the head for not moving out the street. For uh, um, some black women, they get into fights with their employers. The, uh, the employers are mad when they ask for breaks. Violence at a level that we, that it's a normal occurrence to them. And so they use the Freedmen's Bureau for that. Now, that's what the Freedmen's Bureau is this federal agency that's supposed to help. Another aspect of this is that when the Freedmen's Bureau runs into the white Southern and says, hey, listen, it's like, you, you can't take the children. You can't, you, can't hit, you can't hit people over the head. They run into the court issue. They run the people, they run those people who have been accused of violence through the courts, but the courts are still ran by white Southerners, and so they are unable to get any justice there. So the Freeman Bureau says, all right, all right, we got it then. 
we have to create a whole court system to deal with this sort of thing. They create a Freedmen's Bureau court. It's three people. It's a Southerner, an African-American, and a, it could be a Northerner, but it's supposed to be an unbiased person, whatever that meant back then, an unbiased person. So I would say a Northerner, but the Southerners definitely didn't agree with that. So it's in front of this Freedmen's Bureau court, people then start getting a little bit of justice because now the Freedmen's Bureau has the authority to send you to jail if you hit somebody. If you take somebody's child again, when the federal government comes after you, y'all, it's a serious thing. It's not the local people. This is the arm of the federal government. And so they can, they can imprison you. And now black women show up in different ways in the Freedmen's Bureau records because now the court is not only dwelling out justice for, to white Southerners, black women now use the courts for a different thing. Now, I told y'all people are rushing to get married. Another group of these people are rushing to get unmarried. And so they start using the courts to say, hold up, I no longer want to be married. How can y'all legally help me get out of that? So Freedmen's Bureau Court steps in doing that. Black women start saying things like, okay, listen, I had a child. My child's father lives across the way in the county. He is not supporting me. Y'all go over there and get money from him or make him come back, either one. They start asking for child support. When they ask to leave their husbands, they start to say, well, if I leave him, he, he, do, he needs to pay me about $5 a month or something. They create alimony. All of these terms, y'all know today, black women use the Freedmen's Bureau Court to do that. They use the Freedmen's Bureau Court to accuse black, women, black men of domestic violence. And in some cases, they are very successful with domestic violence. Because if they accuse a black man of domestic violence, they, the Freedmen's Bureau Court is more than likely going to... Of course, we have, and I shouldn't make it as easy as that, they have to gather witnesses. They have to... Um, it is a real... It's a real case. But when they do, they are able to imprison black men for domestic violence. And so I should not make this seem like black women are the only people doing this. Black men do this too. They say, look, I had a baby with such and such. She took the child, bring the child back or pay me the money. It's a lot of different things they're able to do. But the Freedmen's Bureau Court steps in to domestic issues, right? That's the way that black, black women start to really, really and that's what I'm saying when I, I wanted to know what, was, what were black women doing, right? What was going on? That's something that I found very interesting because they use the court to solve issues in their household. Third way they use it, so they use it for complaints. They use it for domestic or household issues. Third way they use it is, I'm going to call it dependency, but I don't know. After I finish describing it, y'all tell me what y'all think it is. Dependency, though. Told y'all it's messed up. We all... African-Americans are all looking for jobs, job market bad, everything going wrong. People don't want to get paid. African-American women say, all are in the Freedmen's Bureau office saying all the time, look, agent, since you know so much, I'm looking for a job every day. I'm looking everywhere. People don't want to pay the right price. It's just a lot. Can, can, you, can you give me $5 a month? Right. Today, we know this as probably public assistance or welfare. But they ask these agents, look, can you can you help me? And I don't want to make it sound like this is just 
African-Americans doing this or specifically black women because that's a whole stereotype. I want to make it very clear that the bureau agents are writing all the time to Oliver Otis Howard saying, Oliver, look, they don't call him Oliver, they call him Howard. <laughs> but Superintendent Howard, it is messed up. This is a messed up place. Virginia is a dest. They call this is the language they use. This is a destitute place. The ground is barren. They the the Union Army burned it down. Richmond is destroyed. These people need our help. Like they're not. It's not a fake thing. They're actually suffering down here. So any help we can offer them, we should offer them. That's what bureau agents are saying on the ground, right? And so black women are going to the office just. Help me, give me a ration. Rations back then are food and clothes or money or shelter. In some places in Virginia, shelter. Some places in Maryland, is shelter too. They're asking for just, let, just something to get me on my feet. So Bureau starts being very, very, um, at first they're a little bit lax. They're like, okay, you, we'll give you some rations. But then come to things, the conflict with the Bureau agents. They start to say, well, look, have you been working? Have you been looking for a job? And the women are like, yeah, we've been looking for jobs. Well, let me, let's, let's think about this. Maybe you should leave to find a job. Maybe Virginia isn't the, isn't the place for you. Maybe you should go to another state and find a job. Y'all see those conflicts? These people are asking for help, and the bureau agents are deciding, look, no, no, it's clear that y'all not looking for work. Y'all not, it's clear that the disconnect is happening, that they believe that maybe formerly enslaved people actually don't want to work. And they specifically attach that to black women, that y'all do not want to work, and so they start to have this, and I mean... There are whole books written about this conversation about dependency. What should a black woman get who comes into the Freedmen's Bureau office? Is she a widow? Does she have children? Um, has she been, can she work? Does she show uh, reluctancy to work? They have these really long, and I'm not kidding y'all, the correspondence is very lengthy about what should we do. Howard says, he says, look, Y'all, we actually don't have the money to feed these black women or anybody else who comes into the office. Let's cut dependency altogether. Cut the rations, cut the welfare, cut everything. And the bureau agents right back, and I mean, they, this is the language they use, you cannot do that. These people will be homeless. Winter is coming. There are no, people refuse to hire them. And Howard basically does end up cutting the rations and cutting everything else. Leaving these, not in Black, although black women are a large number, leaving African Americans to fend for themselves without at least economic assistance from the Freedmen's Bureau, okay? So complaints, violence, and dependency, that becomes a huge issue with the Bureau agent. And I, I want to really focus on the dependency for about two more seconds because when I teach this in Black Women in Slavery and Freedom, we have conversations deeply about this because when we talk about the stereotypes attached to black women today, when we talk about in the 80s and 90s, there will, there will be people who call black women who are on assistance welfare queens. They talk about they don't want to work. They, they want to get food stamps. They want to have a bunch of children on government assistance. That is not a new stereotype. It's not a new perception of black women. I'm showing y'all that this was created in 1865. This concept that black, if you allow black women to stay on government assistance, they will not work. That's what Oliver Otis Howard believed about black women. And he, he executed that. He ended up 
ending assistance for them. And so I just, when people think about the, perce- the perception again of, of the image of black womanhood, it is nothing is new. They, it is not, they did not come up out of, come with this perception out of nowhere, but it is also grounded in historical fact. And the Freedmen's Bureau agent, Agency is one of the first to do that. One day when I have a lot of time, I'm gonna write a whole book about this and then hopefully it is groundbreaking. Probably not gonna be groundbreaking though, but if it is, I'll see y'all on a a popular channel. (laughs) So yeah, I want y'all to, so it's complaints, violence, dependency, okay? Now, another group, the disclaimer is, I'm gonna go ahead and tell y'all the Freedmen's Bureau is dismantled, okay? We'll get to that later, but before we do, there's one more group I wanna talk about, another group, African-American widows. This is important because in the Freedmen's Bureau records, the agents say, look, everybody is poor, but I'm going to tell you right now, the poorest group of women are widows. Now, not just regular widows, widows of United States colored troops. Last class, I told y'all the biggest issue with me about the civil are white men fighting. When the truth is, black soldiers were enlisted in the Union Army. They fought for the Union Army. Um, about 8,000 from the state of Maryland, more in other southern states. It, that, black men are a part of the Civil War. I have to talk to Hollywood about why they won't make any other movie but glory, but one day I'll get to that and again be very rich, hopefully. But um, African American widows, these women who are the wives of deceased soldiers. They are they had their husbands have passed away in service to the Union Army after 1865. I hope y'all understand what that means. These women are the literal representation of freedom. Their husbands gave their lives for freedom. And so these women have no it, they, their husbands are not there. And so they first come to the Freedmen's Bureau, say, listen, look, my husband is gone. What am I supposed to do? Those are the first women who really ask for dependency. And even when, I should be clear, when even when dependency, Oliver Otis Howard stops dependency, the agents disrespect Oliver Otis Howard and say, forget that, Oliver. We're going to keep giving it to the widows because they, their husbands sacrificed their lives. And so they become a core group, well, I like to think, of course, that they become a really core group into how Reconstruction looks and the years after Reconstruction. There is one agency, Fred, Fred, Freedmen's Bureau Agency for everybody, but the Widows Pension Bureau just for widows, just for widows of USCT soldiers. This is the fourth United States Colored Infantry. It was raised in Baltimore. The fourth saw, it's pretty popular because they have a picture, but it's also popular because they saw action in the Battle of the Crater, the Battle of Petersburg. They just, it's, and when I say saw a lot of action, they were in those battles, which means they suffered great losses. This is a flag that some, they call this organization, the Colored Ladies of Baltimore, created this flag for the fourth. I'm trying to link the two because you all, they, these are people who support the Civil War and support the troops during the Civil War, specifically black women. So the Pension Bureau was designed American Revolution, um, American Re- widows of people who passed away the Continental Army, um, who served in the Continental Army and passed away, asked the federal government, hey, listen, you all, our husbands passed. These are, of course, white women in the Continental Army. Give us some money. Give us money, a monthly, um, a monthly amount 
that will, I'm not going to say you're going to be rich, but it will sustain you, right? In some cases, 8 to $12, it increases if you have children. And so this system, the widow's pension system, goes way back to the American Revolution. But then, you all, after the Civil War, black women, for the first time, have access, again, to this federal system. Now, this is supposed to be good. We have access. There's no, you can't argue with it's a fact, or can you? You're not supposed to be able to argue it's a fact. Give me the $8 a month, nothing else to talk about. But the issues they run into, of course, are that enslaved black people were able to, to perform. So Pension Bureau says, well, since y'all didn't have no legal document, are y'all really married? What happens, like you said, you say y'all married, but what's the deal? Y'all don't have a contract. If you got married before 65 or really before 63 when the Union Army started going places, where's your documentation of your marriage? Better yet, you're trying to get a widow's pension for your husband, but you're also trying to get more money for your kids. How we even know that man was the father of these kids? Again, union perceptions of black women. Y'all used to be with everybody. Y'all didn't even know what marriage was. So how we even know this marriage thing that you're trying to collect money about was real. And so a normal, and I'm not going to make it sound drastic, so let let me not exaggerate. A normal white union widow's application is maybe... The longest one I've seen has been about 25 pages because you're still dealing with regular stuff, y'all. People do change their name, locations. They don't have the modern day technology to look up people. And so white union widows do run into a lot of stuff. But black women are more than often of, um, of, of, of trying to cheat the system with these things I just told y'all about. And so a, uh, a black woman's... You, Widow's pension application can run between 200 to 300 pages. I've seen it. This is one from Susan Brooks. Um, She is in Dorchester County. She's trying to get it for her husband. Let me see. George Brooks, he serves in the, I think, 25th. He dies in 1864 from back from wounds occurred and received in action. And this file is about 100 pages because what... The, the widow, what the pension bureau realizes is that now when I question you about marriage, Susan, go get all your neighbors, get every single one of them who thought you were married and believed you were married. And let's get them to testify. Let's put it under oath. Let's go do that, Susan, because if you if like if you cheat the, the pension bureau, y'all, you go to the you can be in prison or you have to pay them back. And so this is a huge deal. These women have to get all sorts of testimonies where they got married, when they met, um, when when were their children conceived? Y'all see how just like how how invasive that is. When were your children conceived? Where, um, who was there when your children were born? What did your children look like? And so they have to gather all of their community members to make this pension application happen. And again, I'm telling y'all, the pension is normally eight to eight dollars a month. So you're not going to live very rich off the pension. But just to get that eight dollars a month, this is what black women have to go through. Okay. 
Now, um, pension, pensions, uh, they, of course, I said that, so it's normally $12 a month if you have kids, but they increase over time. The Pension Bureau just, it, after a while, it's just a messed up system, period. It's just, it, for everybody by the 1890s. And so it's a system that goes through a lot of changes. And a historian, um, Brandy Brimmer, has this very um, important book about claiming um, widowhood, claiming unionhood about black women and black women as widows in the pension bureau system. But I wanted to bring that up because this is another federal agency that black women are dealing with. I should also say that if y'all ever should go on the fold three and think to yourself, I'm real bored, let me read a pension file. Y'all probably not gonna do that, but in case you do, they also talk about the war, right? Because these women would have come with their um, partners or maybe without their partners to free territory to follow the Union Army. They talk about how they experienced the war. And so one of the ones that I, that I always refer to is a woman describes the Battle of the Crater, which was an extremely bloody battle, but she talks about the sound she heard. She talks about um, leaving her plantation and her former master trying to stop her, how dangerous it was, all of those things. So they're really good um, file applications to read, period. So now I'm going to wrap this up because I've been talking about the Freedmen's Bureau, the Pension Bureau, but I should talk about what ends up happening with Reconstruction, right? And how we get into um, to, to now, basically. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, after a while, Freedmen's Bureau says we can't give, we can't give that welfare that y'all looking for. We can't give... Um, and Freeman's Bureau agents also start to write Oliver Otis Howard and, and tell the truth. They say straight up, Director Howard, we don't think this is going to be resolved. This federal agency that we're talking about, that we're supposed to have the arm of the federal government, we don't think that's enough to deal with what is going on in the South. What is going on in the South is something we have never seen. The violence that African-Americans experience is unlike anything we ever thought we would see. It's not going to work. This, this, this agency is not enough. There's a, um, a website called Mapping Occupation, right? And I may give it to y'all as an assignment. Mapping Occupation shows where the Freedmen's Bureau is. And it shows when the Freedmen's Bureau is there, the complaints they receive and the violence they experience. And the, it's just... It's just unheard of, right? And agents write all the time and say, look, I, we, I don't think what we're doing is enough. Like, I'm just being very frank. And so in the middle of that, there's this large, and I talked about, there's a large political conversation happening. What should we do with these defeated Southerners? Do we welcome them back in with open arms? Do we force them to pay for rebelling against the United States? All of these things are happening and the, the, the short story, I can go into a lot of different levels, but the short story is that the United States government decides it's over. The Freedmen's Bureau is dismantled. Let it go. 18, by 1872, so it, it existed from about 66 to 72. Between those years, the Freedmen's Bureau is active. 1872, they're out of most states. African-Americans well, at least Southern African-Americans are left to fend for themselves. No more federal agency to go to. And what I, I, I keep on bringing the federal agency, but I, what I really mean are armed people. These, the the Freedmen's Bureau agents in the Union Army were armed. That means that if things got out of line, 
they had the guns. 1872, and, and in some places earlier than that, it's over. This concept of helping African Americans is over. We've done as much as we can do. Moving forward, that's it. However y'all work it out is how y'all work it out, white Southerners and black Southerners. What y'all do is what y'all do. We out of it, though. We have accepted Southern states back into the union. Southern states receive all of their power back. All of the power goes back to the local courts. Look, this is a reconstructed country. We all get along now. We fought the Civil War. It's, it's over, y'all. We're brothers now. We're all brothers now. And so I say that to say that from that moment forward, right, I said this last class, y'all remember, if there was a chance after eight, from 1865 and 1872, there was a chance to really, really give it an honest try, race relations in this country, and the Freedmen's Bureau is one way that it was, ne it was never completed. Now, I don't want to throw the Freedmen's Bureau under the bus because they are successful in a couple of things. They're very successful in education. They end up... Um, working with African-Americans to establish schools, African-Americans sustain those schools. And so I'm not going to make it seem like they had a really, really horrible, um, horrible history because they are able to do some things. And one thing they are successful in their schools, they're successful in legalizing those marriages, but the other portions are left, are left alone. So, um, and I should leading up to next class, where we talk about the nadir of race relations from I, um, historian Rafer Logan brings it to 1877, but I say the end of Reconstruction 72 to about 1923, he calls it the lowest point in American history, the, the most violent time in race relations. And I'm telling y'all this because it is because the Freedmen's Bureau is no longer there to help African-Americans. I also don't want to make it seem like African-Americans were solely dependent on the Freedmen's Bureau for any help, right? Although these women were going into these offices asking for jobs, using the, the um, courts for divorce, all of these things, when the Bureau moves out, they decide, look, we was kind of making it work before the Freedmen's Bureau, and let's continue to do that. And so one of the best examples I have of, again, this is a post-Reconstruction South, is the 1881 Washerwomen's Strike, okay? In 1881, I'm going to set this scene for y'all, we're in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia, during the Civil War, destroyed, burnt down, bad looking, bad shape, horrible shape. A Union General, William T. Sherman, basically made it his business to destroy the city of Atlanta. When con former Confederates returned, there is nothing there, nothing at all. And so by 1880, we about 30 years after the war, people are now like thinking, okay, we, we need to rebuild this South. We need to rebuild it with Atlanta in the middle, right? Atlanta will be this shining city. At this point in 1880, it is mud everywhere destroyed, but they imagine that Atlanta will be this bright city to show the new South. When we get into next class, Booker T. Washington, he has a speech in Atlanta at the Cotton Exposition. That is not by happenstance. Atlanta is supposed to be this brand new, how the South will rise after the Civil War. And in 1880, these 1881, these, these black women are laundresses and um, washerwomen in, in the city. Now, to be very clear, okay, about 98% of the black women in Atlanta work in the, in the home. 
which means they are a washerwoman, a cook, um, a, um, um, a maid of all the, all the jobs that include service in the home, right? And they have been talking about unfair wages forever. They have been talking amongst themselves, but also to their employers. Look, employers, we need more money. I should also be very clear. The washerwoman today is not the same wash that you and I do, okay? I don't want to do the chores now. I don't want to load the washer now. I don't want to plug up the vacuum. I don't want to do any of it, okay? It is all hard to me today. But in the 19th century, it was the real deal hard. It was physically strenuous. You had to carry loads and loads of clothes. It's no washing machine there, so you have to stand over boiling hot water. In most cases, they made their own detergent. Y'all see where I'm going? It's not the gain in the machine anymore. It is very difficult. You have to have some sort of physical um, aspect to, to do this work. And so about 20 women, they've been complaining about this for a long time. They decide to form a washer's union, okay? Why am I, why is this even a big deal? Because I've talked to y'all about how people use these agencies. But I also want to talk to y'all about how people showed agency by themselves, how they organized within themselves. And so 20 black women got together, formed a union. Then they started recruiting people to the union, okay? Hey, look, y'all, we've been talking about unfair wages for a while. Looks like we're not going to make it happen. Join our union. They get um, other domestics with them. It's a huge deal. In 1881, they strike. They decide none of us are washing clothes unless wages are raised. And y'all, white Atlanta, um, Atlanta people are like, what in the world? Like, we're trying to rebuild this city and y'all are striking? What? We, we, I thought we worked this out. And they're like, we actually didn't work out anything. Okay, we are on strike. The strike lasts for a little while, but through that strike, black women are able to, black women, black washerwomen are able to get their wages increased. So those sorts of things are very important because that was no Freedmen's Bureau. Nobody, that mediation was gone. They did this by themselves, okay? It also changes um, the work aspect for all black women. And again, this is more than, 98% of the black women work in the home, and so domestics are able to get higher wages. It really changes the labor aspect in Atlanta for at least a little while. Now, um, with the end of Reconstruction and with examples like this, I just want y'all to, again, think about this was my whole seven years in the school, y'all. I could go on and on about it, but I do want to stop for questions. I want y'all to really think about these the experiences of black women in all these different ways, okay? Because next class, when we get into, we're gonna go into, that. there are a lot of black women I love, okay? There's my mom, there's Beyonce, there's Harriet Tubman, and then there's Ida B. Wells, okay? Everybody, look, Sydney's shaking her head because she knows I say this every single class. Next class, when we get into Ida B. Wells and lynching, you will see the work of black women continue. Like this idea that, look, we can use the federal government or we can go with this another way. We can besiege the, in, in some cases, especially Ida B. Wells, I can tell y'all about lynching, or I can tell y'all about 
what's really going on and how to organize around, around this. We'll get to the, um, the Black Women's Club movement. We'll talk about these things, but I think, again, because I spent a lot of time with this, I think you start seeing, most historians think that starts 19th, I mean 20th century, so they, they start at Ida B. Wells. I always start here because to me, it is these black women who are determining what, who are telling people what freedom is. So if you say that I'm free, then compensation is freedom. If you say that I'm free, you helping me out when I need it is freedom. If you say that I'm free, not being married to this man is freedom, okay? They're really defining freedom in a much different way than what we hear about today, okay? Any questions? Questions, questions, questions. All right, if y'all don't have any questions, we'll start back up with Ida B. Wells on Thursday. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out season two of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.